Good evening. Hello. If you have your Bibles, or if you want to follow with the TV screens, please turn with me to John 7, verses 19 through 24 we're going to look at tonight. The last time I preached on John was in February. I stopped at verse 18. For those of you who remember, for those of you who were not asleep. I know, I could see everything from up here. Right, Brian? Everything. We see the snorers, don't worry. And Brian can see sometimes when I'm snoring. Now in March, I preached on Ephesians. Chapter 1. And the reason why I stop every now and then and go into a different book of the Bible, not to confuse you, because I said I'm going to be preaching through John when, I'm at, when I do occupy the pulpit. But I'm studying some sermon preparations. And um, every now and then I switch the book because my teacher wants to evaluate my sermon. And this is the lesson that I'm, I'm preaching on. So that's why you'll see me switch every now and then. And last month... It was Ephesians, but tonight we're going to be back in John, and it's just such a joy to be in John's Gospel. I mean, I absolutely love the Gospel of John. He is like the black sheep of the Gospels. I mean, he is so different. A lot of similarities, but yet so different in so many ways. And every page in John's Gospel is Christ. Every single page. And it's very thick with Christology, meaning the divinity of Christ. And that's what John's, one of John's main themes through his gospel is Christ is God, Christ is God, Christ is God. And the section we're about to look at tonight is a continuation of a debate which took place in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the beginning of John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers wanted him to go to the feast, if you remember... But Jesus refused to be on their timetable. However, after they went, he went, which is now the middle of the feast. And the Jews were debating five things in that chapter. They debated his character. They debated his doctrine, his teaching. They debated his works. They debated his origin. And they debated even his warnings. They put Jesus on trial. That's what they basically did. They were the judges. And guess what? Jesus is on trial in our world as well. Read with me John 7, 19-36. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. Please pray with me. And Father, we thank you, God, for your word is ever illuminating Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. God, only you can give us understanding. Only you can give us the power to live out what we understand. Help us tonight in Christ's name. Amen. 
1978, Jesus divinely saved me. And I immediately began to tell people about Jesus. I mean, that's what I did. That's what I've learned. That's what I did. I fell in love with Christ, and I began to tell people about Jesus. And I must admit, I was a little naive that people would reject Christ and debate with me about him. I had a lot of zeal back then and very little wisdom. One day at work, around 1980, I was making the delivery in a mailroom in Bloomfield, New Jersey. This was a daily stop for me. And as usual, usual, I would tell the employees about Christ in the mailroom. However, this one day, this one particular day was very different. There was this young man who just got out of the army. And I was young back then too. I mean, I was maybe 27, 28 years old. And as I was talking about Jesus, this young man just got out of the army. He was listening to me intently, interrupting me, screaming at me at the top of his lungs. His veins were protruding out of his neck and his face was beat red. I mean, to say the least, this took me by surprise. He opposed me, he rejected me, and he debated me. I thought he was going to punch me, but he didn't do that. (laughs) He was deeply offended. He was deeply offended by my speaking of Christ. Now, there were others in the mailroom. They either tolerated me, or maybe they really took to heart what I was telling them about Christ. People are no different today than when Jesus walked the earth. People will be offended by the gospel and will debate you. So don't be naive. They will debate you. However, I also want to challenge you with this. Although the gospel offends people and will debate with you, and the, un- and the unbelieving world puts Jesus on trial, does Jesus ever go on trial in the church? It's not just about unbelievers. It's about the church also. Are we exempt from putting Christ on trial? Can you and I put Christ on trial? In chapter 7, we see five debates from different groups of people. The last time I spoke on John, we looked at two of those debates, for those of you who aren't asleep. Let me quickly review two of those debates. They debated his character, and they debated his doctrine. Just as a reminder, the Jews first debated his character in verses 11 through 13. Some debated that he was a good man, while others debated that he was a deceiver. They were both wrong. They were both wrong. First, Jesus could not merely be a good man because good men would never claim to be God. And Jesus did make those claims. And second, Jesus could not be a deceiver because a deceiver leads people astray. A deceiver could not perform the supernatural and authenticating miracles that Jesus did. Plus, anyone who had an encounter with Jesus, their lives had been radically changed. A deceiver cannot do that. A deceiver can only lead lives into destruction. By the way, you don't come to know Jesus through debate. It can be used, but you don't come to the truth through debate. You come to know the truth when God reveals it to you. You come to know the truth when you desire to do the will of God. The second thing they debated was his doctrine. In the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles... Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. And verse 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How does this man have learning when he has never studied? The fact that Jesus never studied at the great rabbinical schools or under any of the prominent rabbis amazed the Jewish leaders. I mean, they didn't go to any of the schools. uh, Jesus didn't go to any of the schools or was not studying under any of the rabbis. And they were amazed at, How does this man have all this learning? Their teachings came from a line of long 
long tradition. Jesus' teaching was directly from the Father's heart, from heaven. He says in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus was the only one who had perfect knowledge of the Father, John 10, 15. So only he could speak directly from him, and this confounded the Jews. And the key to knowing if Jesus' teaching was from God is found in verse 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So if you desire, and I'm just basically reviewing from the last time, if you desire to do God's will, you'll know his teaching is from God. He also, Christ also sought the Father's glory and not his own. He deflected attention away from self-exaltation to God-exaltation. And the Jews, on the other hand, sought sought glory from one another instead of God's glory. And that's why they could not assess Jesus' teaching correctly. Because they sought glory from one another. Two of the many characteristics that mark False messiahs, false prophets, and false teachers are they speak by their own authority and they seek their own glory. So they debated his character and doctrine. And interestingly, character and doctrine go together. It would be foolish to trust the teachings of a deceiver, right? Let's continue tonight to looking at the third of these debates. I thought I was going to get through the last three, but it's just too much in here. Have verse 24, 19 to 24 again. Let's read it again. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. A little background is needed here. The Jews did not forget Jesus' last visit to Jerusalem when he healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years back in chapter 5. Rather than to the praise, rather than to praise him for the miracle, they were angry with Jesus. Why? Because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And they, this led to them plotting to kill Jesus. So when Jesus said in verse 21 of chapter 7, I did one work and you all marvel at it, it was a clear reference to the healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 5. And now Jesus is going to show them that they did not desire to do God's will. Remember back in 17, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he would know whether Jesus' teaching is from God. Well, they did not desire to do God's will because Jesus tells them, none of you keeps the law. What was the central expression of the will of God for the Jew? It was the law. Back then, it was the law. Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. That's how Israel identified anyone who was doing the will of God, obeying the law of God. If you didn't obey the law of God, you were not doing the will of God. However, they didn't obey the law of God, and they couldn't obey the law of God. And that's why they didn't know Jesus. Their wills were against God's law. Romans 8, 
verse 7 to 8, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They thought they could obtain salvation by keeping the law. But no man has ever kept the whole law. And now Jesus gives them proof that they did not keep the law of God. In the last half of verse 19, he says, Why do you seek to kill me? In their hearts, they were breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. They were plotting to kill Jesus. However, in their depraved, godless minds, they were only keeping the law. They were not only keeping the law, they were not only keeping the law, but they they debated that Christ's healing was not God-ordained because it took place on the Sabbath. But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, attempts to show them how wrong and corrupt their thinking is. The law of Moses was given to reveal sin, not to save men by keeping it. But they distorted the law and refused to let it do its work by convicting them of their sin and leading them to repentance and faith in the Savior. That's the real meaning of the law. And to some degree or another, this is all of us before conversion. And sad to say, sometimes after conversion. And Jesus is going to show them from their own law that the work he did on the Holy Sabbath, on their Holy Sabbath, was acceptable. And verse 19 says, Has not Moses given you the law? Which, by the way, is rhetorical. They knew that. And of course they would emphatically said, Yes. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And in verse 20, the crowds answer him, You have a demon. Who is trying to kill you? Now, this of course does not mean that everyone in the crowd was trying to kill Jesus. At this point, anyway. It was the leaders and authorities that were plotting to kill him. However, most of them eventually would be manipulated by the leaders and join in them screaming out for his execution. But at this point, many did not share in the Jewish leaders' murderous intentions. Nevertheless, the crowd exposes their graceless hearts by accusing Jesus of having a demon, which is equivalent of calling someone paranoid or saying to someone, you're out of your mind, you're crazy. That's what they said to Jesus. They said, you're crazy. No one is trying to kill you. And Jesus responds by presenting a tightly reasoned argument in support of what he did on the Sabbath when he healed the man back in chapter 5. He says in verse 22 to 24 again, he says, Moses gave you circumcision. That, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole body well? Circumcision was an appointed sign of the covenant. A sign of obedience to God. A sign that you were a Jew forever. It was a symbol of the cutting away of the old life of sin, purifying one's heart towards God, and also possibly used as a health measure. And Jesus reminds them, That Moses, so they believed, gave them circumcision. However, he also reminds them that circumcision was actually given before Moses. It was instituted during the patriarchal period in Genesis 17. It started with Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then it it was included in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 12. And the command was to circumcise every male on the eighth day. And sometimes the eighth day would fall, guess when? On when? What day? The Sabbath. However, the the law also said, no work on the Sabbath. 
But they reasoned that circumcision took precedence over not working on the Sabbath. It was in, but it was important for them to do that kind of work on the Sabbath. See, he's using their own reason, reasoning. <clears throat> now here's where the all-knowing, all-wise, the omniscient God comes in. Jesus used the same reasoning they did. Verse 23 again. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of, of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man, I made a man's whole body well? In other words, you mean to tell me, he's telling the crowd, in other words, a boy, a boy can be partially healed on the, on the Sabbath? Then why can't a man be completely healed on the Sabbath? Jesus' argument is from the lesser to the greater. You mean the ceremonial law of the cutting away of foreskin is, is more important than healing a whole man? Jesus wasn't changing the law. Or was, nor was he liberalizing it. No, he was fulfilling it. He gave it its real meaning. See, they didn't understand the law's real meaning. Jesus said in Mark 2, verses 27 to 28, he said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath to be a blessing to man. The leaders of Israel turned it into a burden and, and made a man a slave to it by its rules and regulations. Jesus, on the other hand, was greater than the Sabbath and rejected their man-made rules and regulations and restored God's original intention for the Sabbath to be a blessing and not a burden. You know what I find amazing? The created, the created, the Jews, the created, they were created by God, were telling the creator, Jesus, how to run his creation. And Jesus tells them, and I believe... When Jesus tells them this in verse 24, I believe it's an act of mercy. And he's challenging them to repent. He says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Their judgments were by mere appearances. They understood scriptures superficially. And that's why we're big on studying the Bible, understanding what the script, getting to the heart of the scriptures. They majored on the minor. In essence, they were telling them to rise. In, in essence, Jesus was telling them to rise above the letter of the law into the spirit of the law. Dr. D.A. Carson said, They have misconstrued his character by a fundamentally flawed set of deductions from Old Testament law. An approach that turns out to be superficial. Far too committed to mere appearances. If their approach to God's will were one of faith, they would soon discern that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker, but one who fulfills both the Sabbath and circumcision. You see, Jesus did good by healing the paralyzed man. And all that the religious could, leaders could see was he broke the law, he broke the law. In the meantime, a man is healed after 38 years. And all they could see was the law was broken, the law was broken. But if they looked a little closer, they would have seen that he actually fulfilled the law and would not have debated his work. Many times... People look at Jesus superficially. They don't take the time to see who he really is. They don't look at the evidence. Jesus is telling the Jews, hey, don't write me off so quickly. Here's the evidence. Weigh it, test it, come to me for eternal life and see if I'm not what I claim to be. Many made a judgment on Jesus back then. And you had different types of people in the crowd. 
The religious leaders said, he's a blasphemer. They could not believe that any human could make the claims Jesus made and therefore made the judgment that his works are of Satan. Others in the crowd were a little less harsh. They said, Jesus, you're crazy. You're a madman. And still others even less harsh than that. Back in chapter 6, those who were um, for a time, a short time, followed Jesus, eventually left because of his words. Jesus told them, if you don't drink the blood of the Son of Man and eat his flesh, you'll have no life in you. And they couldn't take those words and they left. So there were different crowds, different people in the crowds, different types of people. However, there were others who judged Jesus with right judgment. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew and John 1, we found the Christ, we found the Messiah. Philip, we found him who Moses wrote about. And remember the Samaritans in John 6. This indeed is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And of course, Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So you have those who judged Jesus superficially and rejected him and rejected his work, and those who rightly judged him and received him. And John says this in the beginning of his book, in chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. He says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sadly, most reject the claims of Jesus. Back then, and the human heart has not changed. Don't ever think the human heart has changed, even now. But there are only two options you have concerning Jesus Christ. Only two. People might say there's three or four, but you only have two options. You judge him superficially and come to the conclusion that his claims are false and he is not God in the flesh. Or you judge him with right judgment and come to the conclusion that his claims are true and indeed he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. C.S. Lewis said it well. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis. That guy had a great mind. He just absolutely had a great mind. And the Lord gave him that great mind. You see, there is no neutral ground. There's no such thing as, I'm for him. I don't know if I'm for him. I don't know if I'm against him. I'll be in the middle. No. If you're not for him, Jesus said, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you haven't decided, you decided. If you're not for Jesus, you're against him. Again, most rejected his claims... And thus, debated his character, his doctrine, his work, his origin, and his, and his warnings. And if you judge Jesus' claims 
and the work he did with righteous judgment, you will find out he is exactly who he promised to be. There will be no need to put Jesus on trial. You will soon find out we are the ones on trial, not him. But let me return to my earlier question. Does Jesus ever go on trial in the church? I mean, that's, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we exempt as Christians from putting Jesus on trial? Do we debate his work he's doing in the church? <clears throat> Dr. Gary Berg says this. If the synagogues and the temple were eager to interrogate him, would we do the same? If he came and challenged our daily held assumptions about religious commitments and ceremonies and faith? And Dr. Berg gives us a challenging question now. And Dr. Warren Wiersbe says, and he was speaking of people in general, but I think you can apply this to Christians as well. He said, people today commit the same blunder and permit their prejudices and superficial evaluations to blind them to the truth. Don't let that happen to you. In my 35 plus years as a Christian, I have not only seen this, but have at times been the one who debated a work God was probably doing. Sometimes I couldn't see past certain things. And God has absolutely changed me a lot in this area. Let me clarify something. I'm not saying we accept everything that has a tag that says Christian or Jesus. No, there has to be scriptural boundaries. Jesus didn't go beyond the scriptural boundaries. What he did was he gave the scripture their proper meaning. Even as Christians, we can lose the heart of a text of scripture. Music, and I'll give you an illustration, music has been for the most part controversial throughout church history. Am I correct, Brother Todd? (laughs) And throughout church history, music styles have always been debated. Always, throughout church history. Anytime the style of music changed, the debate started. This cannot be of God. This is of God. This cannot be of God. I mean, it was like that. Both Ephesians and Colossians tell us to admonish each other by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The contact has nothing to do with style but corporate worship. Yet Christians seem to, seem to ignore, ignore the context. Christians throughout the centuries were very slow to music change. Lyrics, steep in theology, singing psalms, or personal testimony songs is what makes music acceptable. Now, I don't personally like rap music. I don't, I'm not... Putting it down, I just personally, it's not my cup of tea. But I've learned that if the lyrics are scriptural, I will rejoice that God is being glorified through that music. Someone recently, let me listen to a reformed, we're reformed in this church, a reformed rap group. And it was fantastic. I'm not crazy about the rap music itself, but it was fantastic. And I could have cried because the words were so scriptural and the words were so encouraging. Now, if I opposed it because I didn't like the style, I could have been opposing God's work. We must be careful with that. But let me conclude and bring some balance to this. On the other hand, you may have the most solemn hymn. But if the words are not totally in line with God's word, you and I have the right and obligation to debate it. Also, God is not doing something new in salvation. He said it. He said it once how salvation was going to take place through his son Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and on says, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not of the results of works, so that no one could boast. 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. You see, we come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told the Galatian church in chapters, chapter 1, verse 8, he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. God is not giving us another way of salvation. Or when so-called Christian groups deny the essentials of the Christian faith, for example, Christ's divinity, or justification by faith alone, or the virgin birth, or heaven or hell, you have the right and obligation to debate and refuse it. However, that's not the issue in this text. It's about right judgment. Jesus came and healed a broken man on the Sabbath. And most were blind to the fact that Jesus was at work. Please, and let me conclude with this statement. Please, don't miss what God is doing in the life of a church. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. And we love you, Lord. And God, sometimes you're doing a work and we don't understand it. Help us to step aside if you're genuinely doing the work. If it's in line with your word, God... Even if we're not used to something, help us not to step in your way. Because sometimes you do things that are not against your word. You would never contradict your word. But sometimes you do things that we're not used to. I mean, Jesus, after all, you didn't preach in a three-piece suit. Times change, Lord. Methods change, but your message never changes. So we thank you, God, and help us to see sometimes when you're doing something a little different than what we're used to. In Christ's name, amen.